Welkom bij Creative Achievers, waarin ik, Wouter Boon, op zoek ga naar de geheimen van creatief succes. In deze maandelijkse podcast interview ik creatieve geesten die goede ideeën weten om te zetten in nieuwe producten. Of soms zelfs geheel nieuwe markten. De podcast bevindt zich daarmee op het snijvlak van creativiteit en ondernemerschap. Goede ideeën hebben we immers allemaal. Maar deze ideeën omzetten naar succes, dat is waarin Creative Achievers zich onderscheiden. Ik maak deze podcast samen met marketingtijdschrift Adformatie en Amp Amsterdam, de Sonic Branding Company. Jimmy Nelson is a world-famous photographic artist known for his stunning portraits of indigenous communities presented in their traditional dress all over the world. He spent a large part of his youth at boarding school in England and that was because his dad worked for Shell. We're going to talk about that and I think uh, it had quite an impact on his life. And when he was 17, you could say that he broke free and inspired by Tintin, He went for for two years to Tibet and the Tibetan people were basically the first subject of his uh, photography Uh, and what's interesting about that is that he sold the pictures he took of these Tibetans, he sold them to a magazine and from then on basically he was a photographer. In 2010 uh, he started traveling around the world to do more of that. He... um, He went to indigenous communities all over the world and put them in front of his lens. And three years later, before they pass away, uh, was there. Uh, It was very successful. It has, up until now, sold over 260,000 copies. And last year, his book Homage to Humanity came out. Um, And he's now preparing for his third book. And since traveling is so important for Jimmy... uh, I'm very happy that in between two projects, I could catch him here in Amsterdam. So welcome, uh, Jimmy, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank cool. you for having me, but I do love being here in Amsterdam, which is my home and has been for about 26 years. So um, you've caught me here, but uh, if I have to be somewhere to sort of wash my hair, which I don't have, and my knickers, <laughs> it's always going to be Amsterdam. How, how, many years of the, how many months of the year are you away and how many months are you in Amsterdam? It's a question I'm often asked and I don't actually... <laughs> count or quantify but Muscle I think it's, it's about 80% of the time I'm traveling oh wow so much I think much. about 50% of the time it's in remote parts of the world where I'm pr- creating new material mm-hmm. 30% of the time presenting exhibiting talking promoting trying to keep the little business that I have going and 20% of the time here watch, washing my knickers okay <laughs> <laughs> um So, so just for the listeners, I just want to say that uh, we met in Manchester in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not going to say we're big friends or something, but mm-hmm. I, uh, we were both uh, keynote speakers yeah. at, uh, at a conference. Uh, it was actually called the Advertising Summit, and I remember that I was in the audience because uh, I, I heard you speak, and, uh, and I was really impressed. I thought, like, you're not just... A photographer, you're also a storyteller. Uh, I was really impressed how you sort of conveyed your story and thank uh, you. And and maybe it's also just because you you have these great adventures and you do a lot of talks, but it was also really compelling. And uh, well, th- thank you. I uh, that's an important compliment to receive. Um, I think organically, I'm not a great presenter or storyteller but as life has evolved and I'm now 52 and I've kind of packed a lot in and I'm intending to pack even more in Mm -hmm. for however many years I'm allowed to be here uh, communicating the essence of what I'm trying to achieve and and, and share has to be done from a story Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter and now I use a multitude of mediums To, to communicate that but it has to come from very deep within and that's the essence of a story and that's all good communication mm-hmm. is about a story so I've sort of evolved you say in Dutch out to deduct us organically into storytelling to realize my dream yeah. mm. um, but let's start let's start all the way back when you were seven uh, because you attended boarding school in England and mm-hmm. um, I think you've talked about this also in interviews mm-hmm, but it mm-hmm. wasn't the happiest time of of your life it's it's i've i've begun to start talking about it because i've realized it's part of the story 
I had buried this part of the story until about five or six years ago. Okay. I didn't want to acknowledge it because there are aspects of it which at the time were quite painful, mm-hmm. which require an element of, of life, maturity to be able to deal with it. But I now realize it's an intrinsic part of who I've become and why I do what I do. But I'm going to take you back a stage further. The mm-hmm. first seven years. So mm-hmm. you mentioned at the beginning, my father worked for Shell. Mm-hmm. It was actually Nadelon Shell. Mm-hmm. And every year we lived in a different country, but a developing country. So West Africa, South Africa, South America, Asia, Papua New Guinea. So I, and I often use the analogy, and it's an over-romanticization, but it's the best way to illustrate it in the context of the story. Mm-hmm. I was a sort of a contemporary Mowgli. Free, wild, naked, genzelos, as you in Dutch, borderless. Encountering snakes. And, and whatever, as, as a child should actually grow up out there out there in the wild, in the world. Mm -hmm. And it was heaven. Uh, But at the age of seven, my father decided, well, he's going to carry on with his profession in the remote parts of the world. There was no standard education for me, Mm -hmm. reading and writing, so that it was best to do what all expat kids do. They get sent to an institution. But in all their loving wisdom, my parents sent me to a very particular institution that was in the northern parts of the UK, on Mm -hmm. the border of Scotland, very isolated, uh, uh, a standing building of 1,000 children and 400 Jesuit wow. priests. So you've got boarding schools and boarding schools, and they still exist today in English culture primarily. Nowadays, they're more co-ed. It's more common that a child goes at a latter stage, not so young, but I went when I was just seven. Uh-huh. So I arrived at the boarding school, uh, open to the world, big eyes, trusting, loving, exactly. curious, and I walked into uh, uh, um, uh, another world, and another world, a hidden world, a secret world, where out of those 400 priests, a number of them literally got away with uh, murder and oh. had access to lots of young, naive little boys wearing tight shorts, hidden away, oh. and, um, and got access to a selection of us. And they sort of, sort of took away, at the time, uh, took away our identity. To be blunt, sexual abuse, nowadays it's spoken about more often. It's, it's not that it's more prelevant, but we now realize that it went on, uh, um, still does today, but hopefully less. And um, and then dramatic things happen. You, it's it, w- it wasn't the physical abuse; it was the fear. Mm-hmm. So, from being this open, trusting child, this yep. Mowgli of loving the world and loving everybody who lived in it and on it, to suddenly being broken, utterly, utterly broken, and all your 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 trust in everything and everybody disappears. But you don't understand why or how because you're too young, and it's fear utter fear so you go from this place of trust into complete and utter fear and then you disappear you as a human being you survive you dissociate but I I, you disconnect with your your humanity and your physicality Mm -hmm. so I often use the analogy it's a bit like you pull the emotional plug out of the wall yeah you don't feel anything anymore yeah You've mm-hmm. got two legs, two arms, a head, a pair of eyes, but you feel, I'm going to put it into direct language, fuck all. Yeah. Because you can't feel it. Mm-hmm. You can't feel it. You don't feel it. And then you survive, and then you evolve, and then you sort of travel backwards and forwards across the world to my parents. I tried to communicate with them what was happening in true English fashion. It's, you know, oh, you know, look, there's an airplane in the sky. Let's close the curtains and have a cup of tea because it's too complicated and too painful. And then you realize nobody's going to help you and you just have to lock off. So when you're young, when you're naive and after the age of nine, you start to begin to sort of put it all a little bit better into context. So they stop. But you've had two years of fear. Uh, The plug is out. It's not been put back in. Uh, Then you bury it. Um, and then what happened to me was uh, I came to puberty, and that's also, I think, very interesting in the context of what I do with work. It's all, all about ritual, it's about growth, it's about leaving childhood and can be- becoming an adult. And as a result of suffering from cerebral malaria, I came back from Sierra Leone at 16, an enormous amount of stress and the wrong medicine. I woke up one morning, looked in the mirror, and I had no hair. In twelve hours, that was the the, the second big event. That well, that, that was the sort of shaped that, that was that was uh, so. I uh, up until that stage, uh, I hated my body, mm-hmm. hated my mind because I was told I was stupid, couldn't read, and couldn't write, and very creative. So you're a waste of time. 
and then I woke up one morning and looked in the mirror and I often describe it, I met an alien. So you sort of lose all your facial hair and you come across something that's truly naked. Um, and it's a shock. Yeah. Uh, then you think, well, it's okay, I'm Jimmy. Yeah, I'm the same I person. I changed, I look mm-hmm. down and it's the same body so everybody will understand. And you walk into your peers and everybody looks at you with a different face complete different face uh-huh. and as much as my face was different their reaction to me was different and then you realize you're really isolated mm-hmm. you're really alone yeah you're utterly alone again again well even more so than before and you're confronted with with the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning in essence and i think by and in a beautiful way that was it was magical because it pushed me onto a path of where we're now sitting here today a path of daring a path of of not ha- having to have no barriers, no fears, and just jumping, jumping into life. So I think at the age of seventeen, I finished high school, and I ran away, and jumped into life and tried to solve it as best as I could. Hmm. Um, I'm curious uh, at boarding school and maybe a little later. Was there room for creativity? Well, there there was. I'm 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 uh, I'm a quite a create the creativity is in you it's mm-hmm. in your dna so i drew drew a lot i painted a lot um but it wasn't seen as a valuable subject ah, okay no. and i was looked upon as somebody who was less intelligent than the other i was told i was less intelligent because i had a they actually referred to me as being retarded because i couldn't read and write at the age of seven the fact that i hadn't been to school was besides the point i could build canoes and climb trees and swim backwards but other than that, and um, there wasn't room for it. It wasn't encouraged, but uh, I was inherently attracted to it and it was looked upon as a waste of time. So I would busy myself. I could draw faces very well. And did you realize I have a skill that no, no one else? No, 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 no. no. You, you, I looked upon it as a handicap, but I, it was an urge. And I'm very, okay. uh, and I, or I would see things, I would feel things, and I would try and record them on paper. But it was looked upon as, as a waste of time. But it was an, an instinctive urge that I had. So I did mm-hmm. it. My mother still has, my father's dead, but my mother's still alive. And she still has a box of drawings I made as a kid because we spent a lot of time in areas where there was lots of fighting. So we were in the Biafran War in Nigeria and a very large coup in, in, in Turkey. Uh, we were in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So there are lots of pictures of me as a kid having sort of drawn tanks and dead bodies. And, uh, and did, you, did your parents no. encourage you at all to... Nope to paint or no. did they appreciate it or I I don't know whether they appreciated it. it was a long time ago but it was something I just did anyway okay yeah. just an inner urge <laughs> yeah it's something you have in you or not um, they they say that like having a difficult childhood and I think mm-hmm. you already more or less said it is, is like a, a good uh, source for creativity and uh, you you said like it it sort of uh, it it brought me a lot of good things because well, it, 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 what was that exactly? I, I, said, that? I said at the beginning that up until five or six years ago, I didn't want to, mm-hmm. I didn't even know it had happened to me. I buried it. Mm-hmm. Then when you're confronted and, 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 and who are you? Why do you do what you do? Why is what you do valid? And I remember after the publication of my first book, before they passed away, it was a very controversial title. Who the hell are you? You're not an anthropologist. You're nobody. We can't find you online. What right do you have to say <laughs> something's disappearing? And then you start having to dig, okay, well, I actually have to start explaining where this comes from, the urge, the need to survive, how I see others, why I need to communicate with them. Um, So it sort of starts coming organically. I wouldn't say in hindsight, if you look back, um, because of everything I've experienced is why I've become who I've become today. But whether you impose that on somebody in their youth and their childhood, that's complicated. Uh, it was forced upon me in a in a f- extreme way, but I think because of those extremes, I now lead a fairly unusual life, an extraordinarily rich life. But because of those extremes. Yeah. But if I may, if 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 I'm going to try to be an amateur psychologist, mm, you no, could, you're you welcome. Could, yeah. You could say that, for example, the boarding school um, made you go to Tibet, um, completely. Or made no, you the, read the, the, No, but the boarding school I needed to escape as a child. Yeah, I lived in fear. Uh, utter fear you lay I mean I'll try and create a picture for you you lie in these rooms they were called dormitories Mm -hmm. 20 kids in a bed and you would lie there and you would never sleep because you would never know when they would come and get you 
There was no reason. There was no rule. There was nothing you did right or wrong. It was just random. They would take you and they would take you down out of this building, put you in a church on an altar and put you in a coffin and then go through a ritual and then take you out and say, because of the powers that be that high above and look down on, we're allowed to do this with you. I'm not going to go into detail. No, no, of course. So that happens. And then you, you need to escape from that. You need to escape mentally. So I found Tintin. And yeah. I, as a kid, traveled. Uh, I had Tintin with me prior to going to this boarding school. And I took him with me. And he became my, my literally my avatar. Yeah. Whereas children nowadays disappear online as somebody else or with somebody else. I disappeared with Tintin. And still today, I know every single book. I know every single story. I know where it begins, where the middle is, and where the end is. Because I lived with him. Is that, is that also why you started to take uh, photographs and why well, you, I think it's very, why you became very, a journalist very, very, no, for, for a while? No, very, very simply. It wasn't, I don't think I pretended to be a journalist. I wasn't. But when I was <laughs> 17 and I woke up in the morning and saw this bald head and face, I remember thinking, where the hell in the world am I going to fit in? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not liked here. By them, I don't actually like myself. I have this unusual appearance. Nowadays, it's actually quite handy when you're in your early 50s because it's... Um, At the age of of 16 in Northern England in the the 70s, it's it's about judgment. Mm -hmm. So I thought, where can I fit in and be accepted for how I look? Ah, Uh, It wasn't about how I felt because I didn't understand how I felt. So it was literally inspired by Tintin in Tibet Ah. and lots of little bald kids. So that's why I went Ah. for no reason. So I bought a one-way ticket when I was 17. I didn't tell anybody. I left school. I spent six months working on a building site, mixing cement. And with that money, I bought a ticket. I disappeared. And two years later, I came back. And I disappeared into a country and something magical happened. The country was at war, perhaps still is, Tibet. Mm -hmm. Tibet used to have 660 working monasteries. By the time I got there in the uh, mid-80s, there were only three working left. It had been shut for 30 years. No foreigners were allowed in. And it was still... A lot better than now. I, a lot better I, I than now, but by accident, I got in. I dressed as a monk, and I was taken into a culture that brought me back to life. Wow. They, 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 they fed me. They guided me. They taught me. They, it's a little bit sort of melodrama. They loved me. They mm-hmm. didn't judge me yeah. for how I felt or how I looked. They said, we see Jimmy. And as a result of that, uh, I wanted to remember the people that I fell in love with, that the feeling was mutual. So it was about recording them. And I had this little old Russian camera with me and only four rolls of Kodakolor gold, for those who are listening, remember what that is, yeah, yeah. 35 millimeter <laughs> roll film. And over two years, I rationed myself to recording those people. And it wasn't a happy snap. It wasn't a selfie. It wasn't a landscape. It was the people who mattered to me. And I wanted to remember them in the most glorious light was possible that- as in gratitude for the feeling that they gave me, a feeling of warmth, a feeling of acceptance, a feeling of being seen. Um, yeah, that's how it kind of started. And, the, and did you already realize, or at that point, this is a medium for me? It, the... the I wasn't in Dutch, you said, bewust, I'm losing my Dutch or my English. I, I wasn't <laughs> aware of what I was doing, but it was a very practical way of no, consolidate, consolidating mm-hmm. the relationship. It was the relationship that mattered. Still today, it's this uh, fas- fascinating obsession and curiosity is how can you get seen by others and accepted by others? So first you have to give. So the weird aspect is, is that by when everything's taken away from you, in my case, your ego, your identity, your looks. Mm-hmm. So as I felt at the time, you're nothing. You're absolutely nothing. I felt like shit, real shit. So when I went to these people, perhaps as I still did today, I don't go with an authority. I don't go with an ego. I don't go with an attitude. I go on the floor. I submit. I go naked. I go, I am nobody. You are somebody. And in that process, you invert the role of authority. And from there, you eventually get taken and you don't arrive with a helicopter, with a jeep or with long lenses. You arrive as a very vulnerable human being Mm -hmm. who wants to be seen, who wants to be accepted, who wants to be fed, he wants to be held, he wants to be loved and he wants to be acknowledged. And and that was the, the search. And I would... and. And now in time, as you reflect, I think that's still what I'm doing today. And it's evolved further into, into what is the project that I'm busy with. Yeah, I, th- I think you said something that 
it's not about photography. It's about oh, making no. a connection. No, but the, the, the camera is, is, if you imagine, you're, I'm using a metaphor, we're build, making a cake. It's the biggest, richest, heaviest, healthiest, if cakes can be healthy. And the photograph is the tiny cherry that goes on top yeah. when it's finished. And that's what the picture is. But you have to invest everything up front for that cherry to be valid. True. But it's not the camera. It's not the technique. It's the emotional investment and submission in that process beforehand to make contact with somebody. Okay, but you took the photos and then you came back. And uh, when did you decide or how did you decide, I want to do more of this? No, well, it was sort of decided for me. I came back and I was 19... I had these four roles. I was sort of wandering around dressed like a Tibetan around London, smelling of sampa <laughs> with lots of earrings. And nobody understands what I've experienced and seen in this city of millions of people all wandering around, judging, distancing. And from that extreme intimacy and warmth with human beings, I was back into the grey disconnection and uh, showed the pictures to somebody. They were eventually published, not because of the quality of the pictures, but for the fact that by default, I'd come back alive from a country that had been shut for 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I received a little bit of money for that. And somebody said, well, you know, you could be a photographer. And I thought, well, sounds good to me. It means I don't have to study. I don't uh, have to stay in London. I don't have to stay in London. I don't have to be part of any group. And I can take this adventure further. Mm -hmm. Um, what I then did was push the barriers even further. And I now realize in hindsight, I was escaping. And I ended up spending the better part of three to four years documenting wars. And let's, to make it more finer, living in close proximity with people who were suffering with life and death experiences. So I wasn't a journalist. I had no authority, no education. I was. I had the only mission that I had was to 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 numb the pain that I was still in that I hadn't resolved, and the best way to do that was to be with somebody who was suffering even more than me. So I spent a year in Afghanistan. Uh, complicated when you've got no hair to dress as a mujahideen. Then I went to Somalia, <laughs> uh, half a year in Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Yugoslavia, and it was all next to death, next to destruction. And strangely, uh, I remember when I was younger, my grandmother saying to me, this is a bit of a side story, mm -hmm. one of the happiest times she had in her life was living in the Blitz in London during the Second World War, because she said that's when people really connected. Ah. That's when people felt most alive. It was, you know, you could be dead tomorrow, so you're going to live in the moment. So I was trying to find a way to connect with other human beings and about being in the rawest, most immediate moment that there is. Any minute now we could die. And that's what it was about. And then my excuse was, I'll take a camera with me. I'll call myself a photojournalist. I can validate it by occasionally publishing pictures. But living in that very, very, very raw moment... You improved your photography then? Yeah, but come I think, easily? Yeah, improve, improved my photography. I began to realize then it was difficult to make a living as a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, I, th I think it's essentially impossible. Um, I was, as we were discussing earlier, quite a creative child. I have a sort of, you don't inzicht. How do you translate that? Spatial I'm, I'm, very, I'm very spatially aware. My ex-wife always used to joke, if you fail as a photographer, you could become a very good taxi driver because you know how to pack every single bag into the back of a car. <laughs> that was me wasn't meant as a compliment, but I find it quite funny. <laughs> so you give me a, a variety of objects, I can fit them yeah. into spaces. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I see images, I see space, I see light. So yeah. that's in me. And then what, what you have to evolve is not the understanding of how the camera works, but is what you're trying to communicate with the medium, yeah. or nowadays the mediums. And that is what I've been investing in for the last 33 years. What is the story? Talking about storytelling, I'm trying to tell. What is the story that I'm trying to share? And what have I discovered in the process of that, uh, that, that search, that adventure? And to go back to your time as a... Um, pretended journalist or yeah. whatever you want to call yeah. it um did you also think i've got no nothing to lose yeah, were you never were you never scared but i but i th also think and if we take the maybe i'm jumping the gun in the gun in the conversation when you've got nothing to lose you become fearless mm -hmm. and you make you dare to do things that normal living souls wouldn't do And what's evolved over the years, if you can do that in a sort of semi-controlled way, you start going to places, experience things, daring to knock and open doors, which most people wouldn't, because mm -hmm. you actually realize it's actually possible. 
So as a child, as an, uh, in my early 20s, uh, I ended up going to places which I perhaps shouldn't have survived from, but discovered by being genzelos, borderless, yeah. I got into places and began to experience things. I would come back to the UK and I started to do a lot of, um, again, I called investigation. It was how could I get into situations of danger? How, and by doing that, it was photographing people committing crimes, in the various and weird and wonderful ways. So I'd sell, sell myself as an investigative photojournalist and ended up doing a lot of reportage into things which shouldn't have been happening yeah. because I dared go in with a camera. And I ended up photographing people who would normally never let you because out of cheek, out of becoming essentially yeah. fearless because I didn't care. Yeah. I and didn't they, care what yeah. happened to me because I didn't feel anything. And they recognized that no, probably. No, they didn't recognize it, but they thought this is so lateral this is so weird <laughs> that we're not going to... I ended up photographing... Uh, I did a whole series on uh, the English aristocracy in a, in a very un uncompromising positions in the world of sort of SM and the club scenes and oh. the charity scenes and daring, to, getting them to dare to let me take their picture, knowing that I had a picture of them and very... But that, that thrill of, of them taking me in, the fact that I dared ask to be in that because I felt I had nothing to lose. And, and that's, it's quite magical in a way. Yeah. And how, how did you get back to the, let's say, Tibetan portraits again? I think I came, I met my uh, then Dutch wife. We're now divorced, although we're still friends. Uh, when I was 23, 24, she came up to me and essentially said, you'll probably die soon if you carry on like this mm -hmm. because you're running away and perhaps you want to. Um, uh, so she said, to cut a very long story short, let's start a family. So I thought, sounds like a good idea. I moved to Amsterdam. So you, you met her in yeah, London? I met her abroad in Greece. I came here. We started a family at a relatively, I started a family at a relatively long, young age to ground myself, mm -hmm. give myself responsibility. And a way to pay for the gas and licht, the gas and the electricity, was use the trades that I'd picked up organically, taking a picture. And I moved into the advertising world. Uh, not as a good advertising photographer. I don't think I ever was a good one because I didn't believe in it or feel it. But I had a lot of experience on locations and getting myself into interesting situations ah. and always coming back on budget you, and in time. You could do your own production. I could do my own production. So I think I was sort of ingehuurd. I was hired in by advertising agencies because they knew with me, I would come up with an interesting location and we'd have an adventure in the process. <laughs> Whether I'd actually make a good pitch of the product they were trying to sell is debatable. So that's what I ended up doing when my family was young. That's how I established my roots here in Amsterdam. And then the better part of 10 years ago, I always traveled extensively. And when I felt blue, which was on many occasions, I would disappear into the wilds of the world for the sake of a hobby, use a camera to justify that journey. But it was about trying to make a real human connection. And then 10 years ago, I had a sort of an early midlife, I think, simply speaking, crisis. I sort of, uh, I'm not a drinker, but for a couple of months, I was sort of quite fond of a bottle of wine before I went to bed uh, to drown my sorrows. And then um, I'm quite a physical and active and healthy person. I thought, well, this is not going to solve anything. I better full-time commit to the only thing I believe in. And that's communicating and seeing and respecting other human beings for my own validity. So that's when the project started in earnest. When you had the idea for the project, because I imagine you already thought about making a book of different... I, I did, again, it happened organically. You don't sit down one morning and make a business plan. I'm going to go and photograph respectfully. No, but you might have an insight and go like, oh, no, I no, could I, do this. I know, no, I, all I did, and I'll be very honest, I wanted to feel happy. Okay. I wanted to feel fulfilled. I wanted to feel complete. I wanted to feel rich. I wanted to feel connected. I wanted to feel worthy. I wanted to feel valid. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago, the digital uh, uh, technology was on in full. Photography had changed. Um, in Dutch, you say, as a fuckman, a photographer as a trade, a, as a profession, yeah. had essentially yeah. died. Anybody could make a picture. So I was, my job was invalid. I was on the verge of packing bags in the back of taxis and being facetious. And I thought, well, again, it wasn't about taking the pictures. What made me happy? Literally, when was I happiest? Mm -hmm. 
standing under, a water, standing under a waterfall in Papua New Guinea, yeah. having communicated to people the validity of their, their, their whole existence. That's what made me happy. So that's where it began, going back to my own happiness, my own fulfillment, my own feeling of being complete. The project has grown around that feeling. It's not I made the project to get the feeling. It was first go and fulfill the feeling of, of worthiness, of wealth, and then let, if anything, happen organically around it. It was, I didn't intend to go and make a book. I didn't intend to go and make a film. I didn't intend to do public speaking. It was about, I've got to reconnect my identity. Yeah. It's, fu it's funny because most people I interview, they... Of course, there's a lot of coincidences in, in mm. how careers go, mm. in how creative careers go. But it, with you, it seems a lot of it came organically and, and you just follow your intrinsic desires. I, I think a lot of it has come uh, by daring, by need, by an urge to, 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 to be able to breathe, to be able to feel valid, to look in the mirror at my bald face and say, you're okay. And how do you do that? I need other people to tell me that I'm okay. So I needed to go to people and communities on the planet that look beyond. They don't judge. Yeah. They can go deep inside and see your soul. And they really can. That's how you communicate. And I know it. I've been living my whole life doing it. And I was doing that organically for my own survival. Mm -hmm. Having been so far off the grid as a kid and needing to continually reconnect. Yeah. Ik onderbreek het interview nu heel even voor een commercial break. De wereld wordt steeds digitaler. En daardoor verdwijnt ons menselijk contact soms wel erg ver naar de achtergrond. Sonic Branding is een vorm van branding waarmee klanten zich onbewust aan je binden. En dat komt omdat muziek en geluid diep geworteld zitten in ons emotionele brein. Een sterke sound geeft je merk niet alleen meer bekendheid, maar ook meer persoonlijkheid. En zelfs een emotionele connectie met je klant. AMP Amsterdam is dé Sonic Branding Company. Ze zijn dé specialisten op het gebied van geluid voor merken en campagnes. Dat was mijn sponsor. Terug naar het interview. Was there like a parallel when you when you when you enter a new community in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere mm -hmm. where they respond to you as if you had the bald head for the first time in England and people were sort of pointing at you and laughing because I guess that's also what happens no, what, 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 no, what in happens is you, you, you get often asked, how do you get so close to make the picture? Um, of the journey, 99.99% of the time has nothing to do with the camera. You first connect. 60% uh, of the time is you're sitting literally on the floor mm -hmm as nothing as a piece of dirt. So you've submitted. Mm -hmm. You've submitted. You have no authority, no presence, no knowledge, no power, no defense. You're naked. Mm -hmm. And using the analogy of what happened to me as a child. And then you sit there. And then, then that dissipates all fear, all aggression, all intimidation. And you're alone. Then you, then, then, then you invert the power. I'm nobody. So there isn't fear. I'm a stranger. I may look different. I smell different or whatever. But I'm not a threat mm -hmm. because I'm on the floor yeah. and I've submitted like a new pet would to its owner. It lies yeah. on its back and puts its legs in the air. That's where you begin the relationship from. And then from there, you start to use your eyes, use your hands, use noises on, I'm here to see you. It starts to become hero worship. When, you, when you're looking up to your hero, you look from down, looking up, you start to use your hands. You start to exude, you start to express, you start to celebrate. Mm -hmm. And then slowly you build and then you start to touch. And you start to go, oh, breathe in and wow and your eyes and, and it's all about emotion it's not about language and then eventually you get closer and closer and closer until you've made one contact with a person who sees that you are there to celebrate them sees that you're there to respect them and then eventually bring out a camera and sometimes you're there without an interpreter or is there always something the majority can... of the the initial meetings are always without an interpreter Because then you have to work hardest yourself. Exactly. If you go with an interpreter, you're lazy. Exactly. You talk to a third person, communicate with that person, I yeah. need them to do this. If you yeah. go on your own, you're, you're naked. And But it's thrilling. It is possible. And I, I often use the, the analogy, and a lot of people sort of look at me when I'm explaining this. They look very confused. And I say, well, okay, Mr. Bean. Do you know who Mr. Bean is? And everybody nods. And I go, well, of course everybody knows who Mr. Bean is. 
throughout the world. It's the one program you'll see on every television screen. Every culture understands him. Why? Well, first of all, it's about a human being trying to achieve something. He okay. fails, always. Mm -hmm. He can communicate how and what he's failing and his frustration. And then in that failure, um, you, uh, he becomes very vulnerable. Very. He has no authority. The irony is he's the most watched character throughout the world, but he has zero authority. He's not there with an opinion. He's there as a failure. Mm -hmm. And through that failure, you begin to empathize with him because you begin to resonate with aspects he's trying to achieve that you yourself sometimes yeah. fail in as well. And when you're that fragile, if you dare, you know, often people ask you, so, well, how do you dare go to these places? Well, I promise you, I'm more terrified about walking around London, Paris or New York than anywhere off the beaten track. Yeah, yeah. I guess they, they also, um, they don't see you as someone that is bringing them harm or something. They right? do if you arrive with an entourage. They do if you arrive with an authority, with an ego, with a long lens to shoot them. There's a reason why camera is called to shoot. If you arrive in a helicopter with a jeep or with... Uh. Um, but not if you arrive on your own as nobody, as a broken human being. And and then yeah. you, let's say you walk for a few days and you mm -hmm. encounter them and mm -hmm. then you sit on the, on, on the floor uh -huh. and you're naked and yeah. you, with hands and feet, you yeah. talk with them and yeah. they laugh and they give yeah. you maybe a little bit of alcohol and it's all good. And some, then Some live worms, some uh, plants. Yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. is yeah. tasty for them. And then at some point you sort of, you um, you show them your camera or however you do that. And then you have the moment where you have to sort of get the, the perfect picture. Okay, well, how, how long does that process Okay, well, there, there, there's, there's a nice... This is a very childish analogy and this is the best way to explain it. Um, I was asked the same question by a pile of teenagers a few weeks ago in a presentation. Mm -hmm. And I was talking and there were a couple of thousand of them in the States and they're all on their iPhones with their heads down, not really listening to me. And then this one kid lifted put his head up and said, you know, the reason why we're not really listening to you is because you're not really digitally savvy. <laughs> and I said, I beg your pardon. Yeah, we're, we're all busy communicating here. You should find a way to communicate. And I said, well, okay. Um, and, and the other thing is, why, why do you use these old cameras? Don't you know how digital works? <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, well, and then I sort of came up with this very organic story to tell. I said, okay, listen, um, I'm trying to communicate here with Avatar. So immediately everybody looks up. Avatar? Are you making Avatar too? Well, not quite, but I'm with a real Avatar. So then you've got their attention. And I go, um, I'm going to give you two choices tomorrow, how you can communicate. One choice is, um, and this is a childish analogy, so bear with me. You can run onto the school square, you're all teenagers, and you can kiss everybody straight away. Mm -hmm. The other choice is you can only kiss for one second, on the last second of the last hour of the last day of the week, which choice would you have? And all the kids immediately said, well, we go for option one. We get it all straight away at the same time. And I said, I go for option two. And they said, of course you do, because you're older. And I said, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the investment. It has to do with time. It has to do with patience. It has to do with fear. It has to do with focus. It has to do with seeing the light. And eventually, if all those aspects are gathered... And it's taken weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And you collate them and they all align. That's when you get your kiss and it lasts one second. And then it's the most amazing, extraordinary kiss you will ever have in the whole of your life. Because it's about the investment beforehand. So anybody now is a photographer. And you can stick a GoPro on the head of a dog and yeah. the dog can make the most amazing images. But to go on that journey of discovery, of fear, of submission, rejection, hunting, finding, focusing, to come back with that one definitive image which collates all those emotions is the biggest thrill of it all. And, and how long can, can, a, weeks. Can, a, can a week take? It takes weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm now taking it a stage further where I'm using analog cameras, but the largest analog camera you can carry, a 10 by 8 inch plate film camera, to make one picture from each community that I visit, this one definitive moment, and the thrill of investing everything in a picture which I can't see I'm making. It's about a feeling. 
until I get back to Amsterdam and I process it and put it on a light table. And that is the most exciting journey that there is. But to dare to do that, to dare to walk for a month to stand under that waterfall with that one image on the plate, I'll make sure I come back with the perfect picture. So I invest everything in it to make it. And I think, and I begin to feel that when you start presenting those pictures, the audience, the viewer feels the emotional investment that's gone into mm -hmm. it. So it's not a picture anymore. It's not a photograph. No, no. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a piece of art without sounding arrogant in any way. Does it happen, does it happen that you come home and you see the, the result and you're like, oh. It can always be better. And that's the thrill of finding one's passion. That's is, also is that, the happiness. That's is that also why you go back? Uh, I go that's back, what you I did go, for I your second book. Two reasons. One is because I'm taking something mm -hmm. and we. Ha I have a little business. Uh, the business is facilitated by the sale of the books, by talks, by selling pictures. I believe in reciprocity, so I have to give back more than I take. So we have a little foundation and an element of what we earn. I'm reinvesting in the communities. I want to explain what I've taken, okay. what I'm doing with it, and why I have to give it back. Uh, the second aspect is very selfish, is that, that that moment I'm trying to capture, that definitive moment where everything aligns, can always be better and better and better. Yeah. And it's that trying to raise the bar of that creative emotional experience mm -hmm. and trying to find a way to resonate with an audience where one day everybody will look at that picture and stand there and cry because they feel what I've invested into it. Are they, they proud of that? Oh, sorry, you, you want to say no, something? No, no, and, and I don't know whether I will ever achieve that, but that is the most thrilling life journey to aspire to one yeah. day to be able to do that. I don't think it's actually possible, but it doesn't matter. The hunt and the search is, is what's thrilling. And uh, how, how do they respond when they see their own you know, Also image? interesting, when you go, I, I was fascinated by that. So you go back with the picture in the books and they're not that interested. I'll tell you what they are interested in. They're interested in the fact that I returned. Ah, okay. So they said, you said you would come back. And, and you have. I'm here. And they realize it's from somewhere a long way away. And where it is, they have no idea. <laughs> Uh, and what that matters, it's not how you see us, because we don't necessarily see ourselves. We feel ourselves. You see us, you document us, you create a sort of a two-dimensional record. But it doesn't really matter because we're not busy with that. We're busy with how we feel ourselves and how we feel you. And that's what's important to us. And you go there and you, you show them another chapter. You know, you're standing in the middle of the jungle and suddenly you're in northern Siberia and there's snow and ice everywhere and reindeer. They can't really correlate that. They're not overly interested because they can't grasp it, but they can grasp me. Yeah, So yeah. it's that they're very much about being in the moment. You just said um, the second reason is, is maybe kind of selfish. I, I always have the idea that to be creatively successful, you need an ego and maybe even preferably a large ego but mm, you sound you, I, you I, sound I, rather the opposite because uh, to make a production happen you have to align many people to get things done mm -hmm. and you have to sell it and mm -hmm. you have to mm -hmm. do pr you have to do a ted talk mm -hmm. etc mm -hmm. i don't think i'm the opposite i think i'm very uh, um straightforward is maybe not the right word uh there must be an element of ego in there somewhere there must be an element of of after all these years of not being seen and understood finally people looking at me saying i understand you looking beyond how i feel or how i think i look nobody mm -hmm. actually cares anymore and we begin to hear what you're trying to say so that is a thrill and that's associated with ego yeah so I can't deny it. Uh, but the humility in, 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 in it's not about the wealth that is potentially associated with it. It's about the feeling of validity. I think you do need an element of an ego to do that. But it has to be an ego that is, you, you have to be aware of it. You have to be in control of it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so it's, it's, it's very much about a balance. You are right. There is, there is a kaleidoscope of activities that are needed to realize what I do. And people, I have a team around me. And then the, the aspect of, you know, I use the analogy of alignment. Of you watch a conductor. So anybody can, you can, as a conductor, you can stand in front of a, a, somebody playing a banjo, dr drumming a pair of drums and playing a, a trumpet. That there they're playing a song why does a conductor need to stand next to an orchestra 
and acquire of a thousand. That's based on ego, but it's this ultimate uh, search and hunger to find a way to resonate all those sounds mm-hmm. to make that one definitive yeah. emotion. Yeah. I was saying how how the, the book came about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it came quite organically, but was it hard or was it easy to sell? The, it was, the idea? It was a good, very, very good question. Uh, 2013, I had an accumulation of a number of these journeys and these pictures. I had no authority, no academic background. If you Googled me, you couldn't find me. I didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I was one of a many million uh, other human beings, billion other human beings. I went to every single publisher of hard book, coffee table books, and they all rejected me. They said uh, one of two things. Uh, one, nobody's interested in tribes. They said actually three things. Nobody's buying coffee table books anymore. <laughs> and thirdly, who the hell are you? They literally Googled Jimmy Nelson. There were two Jimmy Nelsons. There was a, a ventriloquist <laughs> and an uh, injured Canadian baseball player. <laughs> So there are now three of us today. So they said, you're nobody. Nobody wants books anymore. And the theme is a bit redundant. Uh, By default, one of those publishers who I went back to uh, said, you know what? We're going to experiment and make a couple of copies because I see how hard you've tried. (laughs) But don't have any uh, uh, illusion that this will ever succeed. My best-selling publication uh, up until now has been about 30,000, and you will never reach anywhere near that with this theme. And that's how it happened, started, yeah. And that was which publisher? Uh, German, Tenoyes. Tenoyes, yeah, okay. That was in 2013. I think what changed was by uh, default, I gave a TED Talk. And I'd never spoken in public before, and in that TED Talk, I started to dare to go on the inner journey Mm-hmm. of what propels me to do this. Why do I have the need to do this? And I think that began to resonate. And that's what... Is that the, the story of the teepee where the... Your IP and the whole thing collapsed. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And that's about, that's about humility. That's about fragility. It's about humor. It's about being Mr. Bean. It's about where everything goes wrong. And by default, it all comes right because you're stripped of all your self-respect. Yeah. I'll share that TED talk on uh, on the website, and I think I I, I saw a similar uh, similar talk, but uh, there was the TED talk was before the book came out. No, it was around the same time. Uh, okay, yeah, around the same time. And now Tenoyes is happy that they. Um, that yeah, they it was their their pri- best selling uh, coffee table book prior to this was thirty thousand, and now we're in the. Yeah, now they're asking, 000. when are you going to make your third? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And w- what's what's going to be different about the third book? So, just to summarize, and um, you probably have to add something to that. But the first book is is uh, tribes all over the world. No, no, and the no, I, second have, I have a good. Book, the, f- the first book was a sort of a, a, um, a, a vomit of emotion. <laughs> Uh, love. Well, I think I think to the average reader, it's more than that. Okay, but for me, it was a vo- it was a, a, a passionate uh, scream to the world. This is what I've experienced, and okay. it must be valid. The second book was okay. Uh, I'm going to fight hard for what I believe in, but I'm going to take you further into the process. I'm going to give you an insight into why I'm doing what I do, what I experience when I'm doing it, and who are the protagonists that I'm meeting, photographing, documenting, and sharing, so they will have a voice. Okay. And then running parallel to it, making the book digitally accessible. So it was the first ever coffee table book where every single image was digitally accessible with an app. That open the image, so now with a smartphone or iPad, you slide it over the image, you've downloaded the Jimmy Nelson app, which is for free, and every picture is activated with content, films, storytelling, interviews, 360. Didn't you tell those teenagers that? (laughs) Because that's quite digital service. And that's actually why the book is now selling. So that was the sort of, you you take the book on a, you take, and as I often say, the book is... One-tenth, that's above the water, that's me, and nine-tenths is created by my team, that's under the water, a bit like an iceberg. Uh, it's this sort of unending journey. Uh, the first book will be republished this year with all the digital layers. The third book, the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh, will be more of an investigation into the, the, trying, the discovery of becoming an artist. 
and they will be more uh, i will make archival books of my past that's more on photography but future books will be based on on uh, uh catalogs of artistic installations which i'm creating and they will become more di- far more digitally interactive and how do you take an audience uh onto a journey of connection that i by privilege and default get to do for my profession and you can do this until until when is there for, would you for, see yourself changing either your career or your no, medium well, or? no it, the, it's continually evolving uh i will always use a camera a still camera i'm now using this 10 by 8 camera i've had one built for me um wow. it's going to become part of my skin so to speak because this is my my ultimate bliss my ultimate happiness but there are many many other layers going on in and around it to enable the project the story to continually be told the real destination of the project will be the foundation whereby through reciprocity you enable these communities to consolidate on the culture to see the value and the richness and the wealth of it not to throw it away and find a way to to inspire themselves and us in the developed world as to the wealth of who they are and the knowledge that they have and in this sort of way i represent them as sort of contemporary superheroes um and then enable other people to go on that experience with me do you still you still take analog photos mm, right mm. is that because the the quality is always better than digital or um no because the kiss is better uh, going back to the story yeah. i was telling yeah, earlier yeah, yeah, because yeah. it requires so much investment um i would argue when you get to see these 10 by 8 images exhibited in museums you will be touched by them in a way that you won't necessarily understand that's through the analog film the grain the way of using a perspective and distortion on a technical camera that can never be achieved by a digital camera and the emotional investment that's required to make it to travel halfway around the world with a sheet of film with this camera which weighs uh, far too many kilos you invest so much more in the picture yeah um i was having uh, I, i did a television program a few weeks ago with a group of kids and we created a, a photo studio and they had to photograph each other mm-hmm. and i deliberately uh, blacked off the back end of the digital camera and the kids all had a panic attack saying we can't make the picture the camera's broken yeah. and I'm saying what do you mean so we can't see the picture now the camera worked perfectly fine it was on dummy mode they just couldn't see the digital yeah. back and yeah, I said yeah. but that's not the picture you should be looking at you should be looking through the camera at the person you're photographing and then they kept saying yeah but we can't see the picture and I said that's what's wrong that's why I use analog because it's not about the picture it's about communicating with the person if you communicate and resonate with the person properly then the picture will become very powerful mm-hmm. we in the using digital photography we spend 90% of the time looking at a screen not at the subject we're photographing so that's why i use analog yeah okay okay um you were talking about your team for a bit yeah. uh, you said like uh, 10% is me or something 90% is under the water yeah. that's my team yeah. arranging everything yeah. um i was in your stu- studio yeah. and um it's really great by the way you have Thank a lot you. of artifacts and yeah, masks it's, it's, and, yeah, and, and, it's a, and it's an atmosphere it's it's, re- it's really yeah. a nice atmosphere Thank and you. um there's mainly ladies working mm-hmm. in your studio yeah. and and uh, i read somewhere yeah. i think that you said uh, i like to work with female colleagues um it's a good question um there are a number of reasons uh i think the first reason is fairly clear through my experiences of being around groups of men yeah that's, uh, that's my <laughs> scars don't seem to go away uh, yeah. i am i've i've been handicapped by that I have f- not many male friends but the friends I have I cannot ever participate in group activity it's one on one secondly the company I have is small it is humble mm-hmm. it is just financially sustainable so the salaries are very low mm-hmm. I give all my employees an enormous amount of authority an enormous amount of freedom but a very low salary and that doesn't seem to attract young men young men want big salary big lenses big journeys and big cars as quickly as possible and i'm oversimplifying yeah, this yeah. and every now and again i experiment with young men these issues tend to arrive and around the corner comes a female who says it's about 
intrinsic aspect of the project, the story, mm-hmm. the passion. So it's not it's less about the salary, less about the long lens, using a metaphor, and more about the layered communication, the validity of the job that I'm going to do and come in to every morning at 8.30. So again, so it the, grew organically. It's that grown way. organically. And each person who has a function in my our little company was never trained for the function. The camera lady who travels with me is a lawyer. They're all people who've found a passion for the subject and follow their heart, not their wallet. Uh, and invariably, that tends to be uh, females rather than uh, males. And then running parallel with that, I'm more comfortable working in an environment of females and they're more independent. Um, there are a couple of males there. The males I tend to work with tend to be freelance, so perhaps I'm keeping them at arm's length. <laughs> and um, yeah. Whether that's healthy or not, I don't know, but I, I'm just following my instincts. And uh, and you wanna you wanna stay in Amsterdam uh, when you're you're twenty percent of your time. You wanna stay. In Amsterdam. Uh, I love Amsterdam. I came here when I was twenty three. It took a while to settle, and when I travel now, I call myself an adopted Dutch person. I have Dutch passports. I speak passable Dutch to a non-Dutch speaking person. I sound fluent. My kids say I sound like a disaster, but um, and I'm extremely happy here. I think. Um, Logistically speaking, it's one of the most extraordinary cities in the world. Uh, I can be in bed and in one hour sitting on a plane in Schiphol. Uh, it's so accessible and well-managed. I find it a very young city, a very dynamic city, mm-hmm. a very creative city, a very emancipated city, and a very open city in this modern world. And it does have issues. Uh, but relatively speaking, it's a fantastic place. I feel it's loved me. It's protected me. I remember when I first arrived here in my early 20s and I was very busy with judgment and feeling judged and Mm -hmm. feeling awkward and I wasn't in a good place. And in one day, a man roller skated past me wearing a (laughs) G-string and nobody looked at him. He's He's famous in Amsterdam. He's still famous and he's still there today, a little bit leathery. I don't don't see him that often. I've seen him. I've seen him in the winter and I thought, wow, look, there's a naked guy. And everybody (laughs) looked around and said, where? So not that I want to run around with a G-string on in Amsterdam, but you can be whoever you want to be. And then next to that, the only famous Dutch person I knew was from James Bond, Jeroen Krabbe. Yeah. And he was one of the baddies in James Bond. And I said, there's that famous Dutch person. He's riding the oldest bike I've ever seen. <laughs> and in, and now as the years progress, I realize that's the norm in Holland. And people don't necessarily judge each other by... Uh, they do judge each other by who they are, not necessarily by what they ride. Hmm. So I feel very comfortable. Here. And what other place in the world could you live? Because you've seen so many. Um It's also a good question. Where am I most comfortable? And I've come up with a sort of uh, a d- default answer. And bear with me. It's not a place. It's a period of time. It's the moment in between. Um, I'm continually traveling. Mm-hmm. And if you imagine it as a pendulum or a seesaw. So one end of the seesaw is here in Amsterdam. The other end of the seesaw is in the furthest reaches of the world. Whether I'm in Papua New Guinea under a waterfall, which I'm extremely happy and at home in, or whether I'm here in Amsterdam, both are my home. Mm -hmm. And it's the moment in between, that moment of the middle of the parabolic curve, when I look down from above, metaphorically, and see both worlds, how grateful and how thankful I am to be in them, have access to all of them, and see the benefits from both. And not complain when I get here about the weather and the mm-hmm. proximity of all the people, but love it for what it has to give an offer. And the same when I disappear off into the bush. So it's that moment of stillness, that moment of dark. And you mean, for example, when you're sitting when you're in flying, a, in a- When you're on that 13-hour flight, you're leaving home, you're sad to go, but you're an- with anticipation of where you're going to go, the adventure that you're going to have. Or leaving the adventure, coming yeah. back home, and you have that moment of objectivity. That's when I'm happiest. And it's brief, but it's very peaceful. It's very quiet. Often it's dark. Everybody's asleep. It's a beautiful on a answer. Wow. And that's where I'm perhaps happiest. So I'm always looking for that moment. I'm often tired. I'm often emotional. I'm, I'm tired. I'm fulfilled. I'm, uh, and uh, that's where I feel most fragile and vulnerable, but most aware and most bewust, I mm-hmm. say in English, bewust, most conscious. Uh, conscious of being. Yeah. Cool. Okay, one last question. I, I'm, I'm curious because you have accomplished quite a lot and it seems like it's relatively easy for you to continue your journey. Um, I'm, I want to contradict you lovingly. 
um, <laughs> uh, sustaining a small creative company is anything but easy. Okay. There's not one day that you can put it on cruise control. That's no disrespect to the people that I work with or the profession that I am in. You have to sit on top of it 24-7. So it becomes a passion. Okay. The passion is easy. I stand corrected. The passion is easy. <laughs> When you find that passion, you can't wait to get out of bed in the morning because you know it can't be in cru cruise control. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing easy about running a creative business. Okay. Fair point. Yeah. Um, what is success for you? Success is, it's a very, very good question, is finding those moments of pure bliss, those moments where you feel aligned, where you feel utterly grounded, utterly in balance, utterly fulfilled. And uh, that is success. And for me to spend, let's say, 10% of my time in that zone behind a big old camera with a sheet of film after having walked up a mountain for three weeks with the wind blowing and the rainbows about to arrive and the storm and the feathers and the crowds and nobody understanding the language that I'm speaking, but everybody resonating with the passion that I have and that happening, capturing that, those te that 10% of the time is pure happiness. If I can carry on having that 10% of the time till the day that I become a piece of dust and fly off into space, then I will be a su successful human being. But it's very finite. It's very narrow. It's very thin. It's very kvetsbar, uh, fragile. And it's never to be taken for granted. And um, so it's nothing that you can rest on your laurels in. You have to continually be aware of it. You have to continually hunt for it. You have to continually be thankful and gracious and appreciative. But I know exactly when I'm at my happiest. But it's not a material success. It's not a success that can be judged by others. It's mm -hmm. a feeling. It's, it's an utter, utter feeling where that orchestra, when everything aligns and all the sounds, right? And you imagine that conductor screaming, yep. yelling, sweating like a dog and <gasps> he feels it in his toes. That's success. All right. Thanks so much for the interview. Thank you for having me. I hope um, it was uh, vaguely comprehensible. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I think I think it was. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Dank voor het luisteren naar Creative Achievers. Dank ook Adformatie voor het maandelijkse artikel in jullie blad en Amp Amsterdam voor het ter beschikking stellen van jullie prachtige studio aan de Stadhouderskade 1 in Amsterdam. Als deze interviews smaken naar meer. Abonneer je dan op deze podcast via het platform van jouw voorkeur. En laat vooral een comment achter of wat likes, want dat helpt de podcast in zijn bekendheid. Meer informatie over de interviews vind je trouwens ook op www.creative-achievers.com. Tot de volgende podcast.